Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. So today we have Shannon Odell on the podcast. Odell is a Brooklyn-based writer, comedian, and scientist. She co-hosts and produces Drunk Science, an experimental comedy show deemed, quote, a stroke of genius, end quote, by Gothamist and a finalist in True TV's Comedy Breakout Initiative. She also co-created, writes, and stars in the inverse original series, Your Brain on Blank, where she explains the science behind how everything from alcohol to caffeine to puppies affects the brain. She can also be seen at Weill Cornell Medicine, where she's a neuroscience PhD candidate studying the epigenetic underpinnings of hippocampal function. Say that 10 times real fast. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Uh, thanks so much for appearing on the Psychology Podcast today, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. You, I've never said this to a guest before in the Psychology Podcast, but you popped up, and probably not randomly, in my Facebook feed one day. Ah, that's a lot of people's stories with me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I mean that in a non-creepy way, right? Because yeah, like you're yeah. all over the internet. <laughs> you know, Truly. Like... <laughs> I have so many people who I've been friends with for a long time are like, my mom loves, is always sharing your videos. She doesn't know I know you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that must feel good. Yeah. Congratulations on the successes that you've had. When did you start, when did your videos start to really take off? Or what was it instantaneous? Yeah, Um. it's interesting. So. I've been doing science for a while, obviously. I got my undergrad degree in biology, and then I worked as a tech in a neuroscience lab in New York at Albert Einstein College of Medicine for two years, and then I started my graduate school program. But all during that time, I was doing comedy also, and I kept them so separate. I never really thought to combine them. Like, 
when I was on stage being a stand-up, being a comedian, I was not the neuroscientist. I never even talked about science in my stand-up or in my shows or anything like that. And then it was about four or five years ago. So I had been doing both comedy for like three years and was doing science on the side. And my friend came up to me and he was like, I really want to produce a show that's science-based. So obviously, and this was about drunk science. He's like, so obviously I'm coming to you. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I never even thought to combine the two. And that's when me and my two co-creators of Drunk Science came up with the idea together. And ever since then, I've been starting to combine science with comedy and the idea of science communication being entertainment as well. It can be educational, but science is so relatable. It's, you know, science is the study of who we are and the world we live in. So. There's nothing more ripe for comedy, I think. Oh, wow. That's a really interesting statement. Nothing more ripe <laughs> for comedy than scientific findings. Is that literally yeah. what you just said? Is that literally what you just said? I think for me, I mean, that's what I'm thinking about all the time. So for me, absolutely. Maybe for the non-scientists, not so much. But I'm saying that science can be funny. It can be... I oh, think I agree for, with that for sure. I think for a long time or in general, people think of science as this like you know, up in the ivory tower, very like cold. I mean, obviously, it comes from the idea that like scientists, we have to be unbiased and emotional, very analytical. But, you know, we are humans doing science. There are things that are relatable about science. There are things that are funny about science. There's ways you can learn through laughter, through emotion. Yeah, that's what I just feel about it. Yeah, I've always been really interested in this link between the personality of scientists and the personality of comedians, there seems mm -hmm. to be in a Venn diagram some large chunks of areas that are very not associated. Yeah. But but there seems to be some chunks of area like a real appreciation for the truth yeah. that does seem to be shared, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, one of the first tenets of both comedy and for science is observation. You know, yeah. it's observation. That's so true. Yeah, comedians are observing the world and making why comedy is funny is because they're saying something that you already know and you're kind of just bringing light to it and you're like, "Oh, that's so funny and so true." And with science, it's like it's a little different cuz you're like discovering the reason why we interact the way we interact and I don't know, it's just so relatable and interesting. There's a lot of political correctness these days, and wherever side of it you're on, that could be a really great thing, or it could be a really a silly thing. And I understand there's multiple perspectives on this issue. So, But I do think that in comedy, some comedians have said that they feel like if they say certain things on college campuses, et cetera, it's mm. considered like taboo now in a way that wasn't 10 years ago. There mm. seems to be a cultural shift in the, what truth you're allowed to say, like if it offends people. And mm. then as a scientist, it's interesting, science... Some scientists, like if you're a scientist and your data offends someone, you always get like the pass, you know, like you always hear scientists yeah. saying, well, I'm just the data. It's just the data. Right. But comedians don't have that out. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, so, absolutely. Okay. So I wanted to riff on this because I, my point wasn't fully articulated, but I just wanted to riff on this. No, this is interesting. I never really thought about it. I, me neither. Just, <laughs> yeah. Immediately what comes to mind is, okay, this is the example I like to think of, I'm thinking about right now is. You know, with comedians, we're here to give comedy, but like ultimately who we're, is in charge of the comedy produced or like whether we want to get booked or not is the audience. Yeah. So if the audience is saying that they don't like that kind of humor, 
then like you shouldn't do that kind of humor. You know what I mean? And that's what I always get upset when people are like, oh, I can't say this on college campuses because they don't like it. It's like, well, they're booking. And if you can't come up with a joke that doesn't offend people, then like maybe you're not a good comic. Well, that's an interesting, that's actually very interesting. And in the same way, I thought of just the, the audience of like, what type of research gets funded is kind of set by another committee, you know? Yeah. I don't know exactly the parallel I'm trying to Right. The audi- no, no, I see what you're saying. So what is the audience in science is what you're saying. Yeah. And, you know, there's an audience when your paper is published and you're doing public science communication because I, mm-hmm. you know, I live in that space. You know, I write a column for Scientific American. I'm constantly trying to summarize findings. And I come across some findings that I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. And then I think about it further. I'm like, that's also really controversial, <laughs> you know, like, right. and, you know, I, I'm constantly having to, to uh, think through what do I want to put my emphasis on in, in my public science communication? What topic right. do I want, Drew, I really want to talk about? I don't believe in inhibiting ideas, but I, I have free will in the sense that you can't force me to like talk about a topic that I don't feel like is worth that much attention. At least I right. have that right. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not trying to shut down discussion, yeah. but at least I can, you know, I have like a hundred ideas, you know, which one do I pick? So to what extent is it, uh, you're both, (laughs) you're like a hybrid model. Uh, (laughs) What do you, how much do you think? Yeah, truly. How much do you think through, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't go there or maybe I shouldn't go there actually fuels your idea to to include it. (laughs) Well, this is what I think with everything is that an importance in science communication that we have as scientists doing it is really to get across the idea, it's to strike this balance, to get the idea across, like, this is what this study found, and this is why it's really interesting. But these are also the reasons why this study could not be true. You know, like, we as scientists were trained to be skeptical of everything we read, and we, you know, we've had trained years of training in this, and that, like, just because one study shows this correlation doesn't mean anything, and we know that when we read the paper, but it doesn't make the paper not cool, it just means we need our job as science communicators is to get the idea of the paper across, but still allow the audience to be skeptical and know how the scientific process works and how this needs to be, you know, other labs need to try this again and repeat it and see if it comes up again. It's, I think that's our jobs as science communicators to get across to our audience. So not inhibiting what you say, but always saying like one lab found this and to be sure to look at that counter research love that. Just be sure that it's there. Because not everyone has the ability to find that counter research because of how science is built. And I could go on forever about this, about like how scientific articles are, people can't, it's, there's a paywall, so people can't get access to them. There's also a language in which scientific articles are written that makes it very difficult unless you've spent years and years and years in science to understand how the article is written. Yeah. Yeah, I really love that. And you know, just basically you're saying like, we should have nuance in public science yeah. and I, I think that's like you do a really good job striking that balance that's one of the reasons why i invited you on the show today i want to work on this a little more i basically i want to learn from you a little bit you know how can we use humor to enhance that nuance and show the, the absurdity of science too i mean i feel like scientists take themselves too seriously <laughs> I, I mean if you ever read reviewer comments and journal articles there's yeah. no look science seems to be so humorless uh, yeah. science communication amongst scientists themselves. Mm, mm. And it's really a kind of a, it's upsetting to me, <laughs> quite yeah. frankly. I feel like there needs to be more humanity I and mean, show how absurd, you know, this is. And so you kind of do that. There's kind of a meta level to your humor, which I like. Like, I remember when you were talking about dinosaurs and you're like, you know, some scientists think that this 
species yeah. really existed. Some don't. And then you're like, so the conclusion is maybe there is, maybe there isn't, you know, like scientists don't yeah. know what the hell they're talking about. You know what, yeah, <laughs> what, yeah, what the exactly. answer is. But that was really brilliant. A really good model for like scientists to just calm down, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> Everyone's fighting. And I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of science is like everyone has these passionate ideas. And I know what drives people to do science is like, I really believe in this theory and like, I really believe in this theory and this is my data to show it. But then this camp's like, well, we got all this data to show this. And it really creates a great debate. But yeah, I think there is kind of a seriousness to science. And I remember when I started doing the videos, it was a real fear I had because it is scary. You know, it's not scary to be a comedian because I'm just representing myself and my own feelings and my own experience. But when I come out as a scientist talking about science, and all of a sudden in the videos, I mean, it was a surprise to us when the videos were getting millions of views. It was like, whoa, okay, people are. It and really people went are viral. Having, yeah, and people are having reactions to it. And I'm getting messages and this and that. And it was a little scary because it's like, I believe that science should be fun and mm. we can talk about it in the light. But I definitely got those comments that were, one, people not believing that I was actually a scientist because, you know, people have biases. People think young women can't be a scientist, can't be scientists. You know, they don't like the way I talk about it because I'm talking about it in my own voice and my own voice, that being not of like, an you know, older, like cold man talking about science. I'm just my Jersey young self, which means that you need a bow tie. Yeah. And then you'll be, then you'll be fine. Right. I, I'm not, very yeah. I'm very different from Bill Nye, you yeah, know? Yeah. I was obviously joking. Yeah. Yes, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a little bit scary, and I still have this fear. That's why whenever I do a video, I'm like, I like see through every piece of research I'm putting in there. I'm making sure that like I'm double checking the papers. Like I got this right because I know it just takes a couple mistakes for someone to come at me. But at the same time, I'm like, I can make mistakes. Science isn't perfect. I'm open to suggestions. It's all you know. A process. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's a terrific attitude. Yeah. So I feel like your big breakout moment, and correct me if I'm wrong, was your brain on alcohol video mm. with you drunk yeah. talking about uh, the science of what happens when you're drunk. Yeah. And there was such a, I want to discuss why you think that went viral. It was such a combination of things that in its each one in itself is not rare like being drunk being you know a scientist but you start to multiply them and you get a rare probability that is Shannon Odell uh, you know so <laughs> so can you explain can you describe it all like why you think that did so well well i think part of it from my experience when our live show drunk science which essentially is a show where we bring on a scientist and we have three comedians there and we all drink and play drinking games we have conversations about science and it's a great time. The comedians then give a dissertation on a scientific topic after they've had a couple of drinks and they've done their research. And it's just, it's a really fun time of taking science, which is on this pedestal. And just, we have scientists there, we have comedians there, you know, we have science communicators there and we're all just drinking and having a fun time and taking science off this pedestal. And it makes it feel like you're at a bar just hanging with your friends, and one friend happens to be a world-renowned scientist that we bring on. And I think those shows were so popular, and I think just because of that, just because people felt 
like didn't have that one-on-one time with a scientist and they certainly didn't have that one-on time like with a drink in their hand and i think drinking you know i'm not i'm not like go drink everyone drink <laughs> but it helps bring down that barrier that first barrier and it makes people feel relatable it's like oh this scientist is drinking a beer like and so am i and let's have a conversation yeah and so i think that's why the video did so well cuz it was talking about science and it was all real things but i'm drinking i'm a scientist that's drinking i also think a lot of my <laughs> pronunciations you love it people yeah oh my gosh you're human because most scientists are scared of being human yes yes well and i i think because the reason is is that we're trained to be on the defensive right we're trained to like have our data and our goal is to defend it it's like i know the answer to that and like if you come at me with that thing this is how i respond it's it builds this like defensive wall which i don't think you can really be when you're like having a conversation or no one's going to want to have a conversation with you. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. So really good point. So your brain on alcohol was one really popular episode. I thought we could have some fun and I'm going to go through some other things and say your brain on blank and give yeah. me like a three sentence, four sentences description of each one. Okay. You know, condensed. We'll, yeah. Yeah. We'll see how many. We'll I see. Know. Okay. So your brain on the flu. Oh, you're sick. Your body's like, crank up the heat. You got shivers. You got mucky brain. <laughs> Is this the scientific <laughs> knowledge you want? That sounds very scientific. I know that, I know that you have like experts <laughs> in their fields on this podcast. And I'm like, the flu gives you a real mucky brain. Your immune system's making your brain all wishy-washy. <laughs> so no, wishy-washy. Is that the technical term, wishy-washy? Yeah, that's what we use in the lab, yeah. Okay. <laughs> So your brain on breakups. Mm, wow. Physical pain. Your body thinks you're having emotional pain. Well, guess what? Same brain areas activated in emotional pain. So you are in literal pain. You got an oxytocin deficit. Ooh. Yeah. Well, Advil can help with that, right? Some research well, shows that. Well, not with the oxytocin deficit, but Advil can help. Supposedly, in one study, again, it needs one to study, be yeah. Yeah. that it yeah. could help lessen. Yeah, yeah. I'm popping Advil all day long just in case, you know, to preempt it and whatever happens. If <laughs> yeah. I get your brain on puppies. Mm, wow. Okay. Oxytocin, again, major player. Your brain's like, is that a baby? I want to take care of it. Uh, it's got those big old eyes. We're loving it. <laughs> is it. Again, oxytocin, right? Yeah. Your brain on caffeine, which is my brain right now. Mine too. Your brain's like, wow, my sleep areas in my brain, nope, too bad. We're on. We're ready to go. We're up. We're happy. We're addicted. <laughs> <laughs> this, I'm addicted to this game. Yeah. I, I, I want to. I'm thinking of other things that you talked about that I've seen on your your thing. Give me one more. Your brain on what? Brain on social media. Yes, I love that one. Okay, what's our that? Open means like ooh, 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 our social network areas of our brain are like bing, bing, bing activated. Yes, I love this, and I think it's actually good. <laughs> if you're an extrovert. If you're an extrovert, yeah. Like Can I add caveats to this? Yes, if you're an extrovert. Introverts, though, they seem to post more. Introverts, you said? Yes. But they don't get as much reward from the response no. to it. No. <laughs> That's an interesting paradox, actually. Yeah. 
Oh, cool. Okay, so we just covered that was fun. Now let's get serious. <laughs> let's get serious. Okay, right. Your now your laboratory studies yeah. the epigenetics of early life adversity and its mm-hmm. effects on the brain. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of this research going on in your lab and what your PhD is contributing to this field. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, essentially, yeah. What I look at is epigenetics, which is essentially we know your DNA. This is the classic thing that's taught in schools, and then. Epigenetics is basically everything on top of your DNA. It literally means epigenetics on top of DNA. So this includes DNA methylation marks. This includes histone marks. And essentially what epigenetics does is it alters the way that certain genes are being expressed. So what our lab looks at is specific regions in the brain, mostly the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is responsible for memory. It's responsible for emotional thought. So what we look at is how, if you undergo early life adversity, how these epigenetic marks change. Yeah, essentially. And then how does that affect the hippocampus function? Yeah. The hippocampus is quite important, isn't it? Yes. Incredibly important for memory. And the early life adversity paradigms essentially that we look at is we look at different forms of early life stress. So one being maternal separation. And so we use mouse models for all of this. So maternal separation is essentially you separate the mom from the cage a couple, a, for a couple hours every day. Then you have your, um, your maternal immune stress, which is a stress that you might not typically think about, which is essentially we expose the mother to a immune stressor during in utero. Oh, wow. Yeah, when the pups are in utero. And then the third being actually another form of early life stress that you might not think of. It's essentially early life immune stress where the mothers are uh, deficient in serotonin 1A receptor. And while the pups are completely genetically normal, they still have gone through this early life stress of having a mother that is serotonin 1A receptor deficient. So do we think we can model this up to humans? Yeah, that's really always an interesting thing that we do all these early life stress paradigms in mice and then modeling up to humans. And yeah, I mean, essentially the maternal separation paradigm is something that's often, you know, looked at because we do know in human studies, you know, if you look at horrible instances in history, like with Romanian orphanages, those large studies that showed that these children that didn't weren't exposed to a lot of touch during their early childhood, then when they grew up, had a higher likelihood of a lot of neuropsychiatric diseases. So, I mean, one way to look at what could the molecular reason for that be is to look in a mouse model of that. Yeah. How much do you control for the similarity of genes between the child and the parent? Because some behavioral geneticists have argued that some effects that look like environmental effects are actually mm. genetic effects, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when we work with mice, you're working with incredibly inbred mice. They're inbred. So essentially, the okay. mice have the same genetic standing. So then we can really look at the epigenetic because genetically, they're absolutely the same. Well, so your PhD will really substantially contribute to the literature. I'm hoping. Yeah. yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. Epigenetics is such a interesting 
it's obviously not that new, but it's right. new enough in the field that it's really exciting because classically how we think about how things are transmitted or diseases, especially, and just diseases that are non-neuropsychiatric diseases as we think about it through genetics, like, oh, you have you know, this gene, there's a mutation in this gene, it causes this disease. But essentially for a long time, neuropsychiatric diseases were really a black box. Yeah. Um, we thought maybe it was a combination of many different genes working together, and that's why we couldn't figure out, because it was one-to-one. -one. Or really what we're thinking now, it's a mix of genetics and also environmental factors, which means that the environmental factors are probably affecting it through epigenetics. Yeah, so, you know, it's just so interesting to think how this applies to humans in lots of ways we don't really know, because it gets so complex when you get to humans, mm. and you get you have so many genes. So many genes, and <laughs> obviously you're not inbred so there's a lot of things going on well speak for yourself yeah <laughs> no I don't, I don't know why i said that yeah <laughs> do you know uh, I, have, I have this tendency in the psychology bodies to keep saying speak for yourself like when yeah. and i don't know i need to stop that <laughs> <laughs> but i think one of the yeah. most interesting things about epigenetics that i like yeah. to think about i'm looking specifically at like one generation pretty much but yeah. if there's this whole thing with transgenerational epigenetics and my favorite thing to think about is that when a mother is pregnant, she essentially is carrying around the grandchild, half of the grandchild, because mm -hmm. the eggs that will become the grandchild is developing in utero too. So the baby's developing eggs, which will then become half of the grandchild. So any kind of environmental insult that a grandmother is experiencing could affect the grandchild. Yeah. Has the potential, which is just mind-boggling. I mean, I'm probably, I think, I think, I mean, to keep the emotions <laughs> with the emotion, it's kind of beautiful, I think, a little bit yeah. to think about how long you've been around or part of you has. Yeah, it is beautiful. And Carl Zimmer talked about this on our recent chat for the podcast. Mm -hmm. So, And he also wrote about this beautifully in his book. Yes, his book. yes. He talks about how this probably it doesn't last more than two generations, though. The effects kind of wear away. Yeah. But it is still beautiful to think that even a couple generations, you know, that it could be that kind of direction of effects. Right. And with that being said, too, the idea that with epigenetics can definitely affect things, but the idea that the brain is so resilient, too, mm. so plastic. Yeah. But that's the great thing with all these. We've seen these yeah. links of early life stress. How does it affect the brain? But at the same time, we know the brain to be so resilient and plastic and yeah. can really overcome so many things. So, yeah, it's kind of, I think of it not as so fatalistic, but as like, I don't know, just understanding more because it's, we want to understand about ourselves. We want to know, obviously for treatments, but also I think there's a natural curiosity that people have. We want to know about ourselves. Sure. I mean, physicists don't feel like they have to constantly justify, like, we want to study black holes for treatment. <laughs> you know, like, right. it's, not, it's, not, it's not like they keep, like, you know, having to justify that. Psychologists have get constantly get pressure to, to, to say, oh, oh for, they're like, they're, if they forget, they always have to say, oh, I mean, you know, we want to know this so we can help people. <laughs> you know, right. like, so, some things yeah. are, like, as interesting as black holes, though. <laughs> like, yeah. I just, just want to know. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good, good to know. But does have obvious direct implications. Mm. But, you know, as I say that, I'm thinking, like, regardless of the results, it's not like we're ever going to be like, okay, so the results suggest we should have maltreatment, you know, for, yeah. for people. I'm sorry, you know, I'm a bit dark humor, but I'm just thinking, like, I can't think of, you know, like, this can only help, you know, to further show the importance of good treatment of a developing brain. 
Right. right. Yeah. Absolutely. Good yeah. treatment. And also because in the field of neuropsychiatric disease, we have treatments that work well, somewhat well, but they've been the same treatments we've had for so long. Yeah. And yeah. part of that is because we don't completely understand, you know, why we don't completely understand why an anxious brain is an anxious brain, why a depressed brain is a depressed brain. And yeah. that's, I mean, if you think of most genetic diseases, we know the reason why. Like, it's just like that gene is causing this and that causes this. But these neuropsychiatric diseases are so complex. The more we open up these black holes. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Good. The more we open up these black holes, the more treatment options that could be available that we couldn't even think of before because sure. we don't really understand how it's functioning. For sure. Okay, so you get a lot of questions asked to you, which is further evidence that your style of public science communication is resonating with a lot of people and is stimulating mm -hmm. interesting, thoughtful, scientific questions. Yeah. So again, showing that these comedy and science do not have to be at odds, you know, or, yeah. or science and thoughtfulness, I should say. So can you think off the top of your head some of the most thought-provoking questions you've received? Mm, yeah, I mean, the questions that, the number one questions that I always, I love to get because they're the easiest for me to answer and I feel like the most impactful are people who message me and they say, hey, I really want to be a neuroscientist, you know, younger people, and they don't really know what the path is to doing that. And so those are my favorite questions because I... love I, that too, yeah. Yeah, just to know that I'm presenting myself in such a way that people feel comfortable just cold messaging me yeah. um, to ask me that kind of thing. And I try to get to all of them. I'm sure there are some that I've forgotten and that person's listening to this podcast and they're like, well, she didn't answer me back. <laughs> but those are the ones that I really love. But yeah, people people ask really interesting questions. I'm trying to think of what uh, I thought of. People are always so interested about consciousness and I wish I knew more about it. I get that question always of like, what is consciousness? <laughs> How like, do I know I'm conscious? Yeah, I'm like, this is a philosophical question. I feel like it was. <laughs> but yeah, I think people are asking such great questions. When I do my AMAs on Instagram, essentially every week, I try to every week on my Instagram, I host a different topic. Great. Like last week, we hosted the science behind weed, essentially. Oh, wow. So every week, we I bring Your up brain a on topic. weed? Yeah, essentially, yeah. It's just an open-ended question like, what's the science behind sleeping? What's the science behind taste? And I open up for questions using that wonderful Instagram question tool that is was Wait, that exists? Wait, yeah. I, really, I'm going on Instagram right now. Wow, I, I, ask you, I want to ask you a question. Of, <laughs> world of Instagram. So it has to be on your story, and essentially, so I do it for 24 hours. I open up questions, okay. and then I'll just, normally it's on topics that I don't even know that much about, but yeah. then I just research as well as I can and to answer all the questions as well as I can. And it's actually really fun for me because I get to learn about all these different topics and I think it's kind of, obviously people can look this stuff up on their own, but, you know, I have tools being a scientist, meaning like I have access to all these scientific papers. And so being able to kind of break all those down and give that information to people feels really good. People ask like great questions that I never thought. I was doing the science behind skin. Yeah. People are like, what are freckles? I'm like, I have no idea what freckles are. Let me look that up. <laughs> <laughs> so you learn from people as well. Mm, yeah, is what it absolutely. sounds like to me. Yeah, I really like to see you just have a real uh, curiosity and openness, which is makes 
both comedy and science fun. Mm. So yeah, I really like that. You also are an inspiration to women that want to be scientists. And what do you see as some, I don't know, barriers for women entering science that you've maybe yeah. personally experienced? Yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know how much has changed in young scientists, but I, I remember growing up thinking that I wanted to be a scientist, but I didn't necessarily see that as a woman's job. Um, sure. I was actually just thinking about it today that I learned quickly. I love science. And like I had my toy microscope and I was like going out into the woods and just like looking at things yeah. under the microscope. I was obsessed with dinosaurs for a while. I wanted to be a paleontologist. <laughs> so the type of science was always changing. But Were I you a Brontosaurus science. fan? Yes. <laughs> so really loved it. And then I remember like, for example, there was a moment in my sophomore year in high school, I was taking honors chemistry and a teacher brought me in after the first test. And she was like, you know, you got the highest score on the test, right? And I was like, oh, no, I didn't know. Great. And then proceeded to ask me questions as if I had cheated. And I was no. like, yeah, like, I mean, obviously that happens to a lot of students, I guess. I don't know. But it, I felt like I was being attacked as a woman, even though she was a woman as well, just like no way she could have gotten the score on the test. And I think there is a general feeling like, oh, women are bad at science, women are bad at math. You know, there was always less female students in your science courses or whatever. But I think that is, that dynamic is changing. So hopefully that is the first thing that needs to change. And second is just the environment at the academic level too, of welcoming in women. I mean, there is like a general problem across all fields of making situations comfortable for women. I mean, I can think of lots of separate little stories. Like I remember, for example, in my years as a research technician, I trained people on the confocal microscope as part of my job. And I remember getting students coming in and like asking me on dates. And that kind of scenario is humiliating as a professional because it's making this idea that like if you're a woman in a situation, you're being thought of as, you know, a sexual object or someone to be asked on a date or something mm. like that. I think general, those types of things need to change. And obviously it's, tox it's toxic in the science environment, but I think it's across a lot of different workplace environments. And I think it's just a cultural shift of, of just like how we treat women in the workplace and also like how we there's also the huge problem in academia of like having to produce and produce and produce and you always hear it you're like women who have children won't get tenure and not necessarily that they're not producing the same amount but there's just a thought that like oh if you're having children you know you're not going to be able to produce as much yeah so I think there's a lot of different things mm -hmm. but I do think that the more we create an environment that's friendly to women. I think this is happening. Um, more women in, in higher positions at colleges and universities, you know, in dean positions and things like that, it will, I'm hoping, will open the gates for more women in science and more diversity in general in science, because I think that's really important. I mean, women are faced with, you know, there's always that classic trope that you hear women aren't funny. It's just like, funny to who? Am I funny to, you know, a dude that's nothing like me? Probably not. But that doesn't make my comedy less relevant because there's an audience out there for it. It's just who the gatekeepers are. And even the combination of comedy, entertainment, and science, like, 
women host of science shows. There's not that many. No, there really aren't. There You're really right. aren't. And, and that matters. And the, why is that? Because it's, people think, oh, women can't host. It's not that there isn't female science entertainers out there, because there are. There are plenty, and I've met lots that are awesome, that are, have their YouTube channels, that are doing great things. But I think a gatekeeper problem and, yeah, just a general toxic culture that needs to change. Right on. So great. I really appreciate the work you're doing in lots of different areas to increase science, to increase the importance of humor, the importance of making women more comfortable in science and just making the world a better place. So thanks for being on the Psychology Podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. It was a blast for me too. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast. And tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual.